We live in a sexually charged, sexually confused age. And I believe on good authority that many of us, and maybe I'll just speak on like church, a pastor can speak on behalf of church. Most people in the church don't like to talk about it. Either we don't, or we won't, or we can't, or we don't think we should. Uh, many of us grew up in homes with parents or churches. They <laughs> were like, get that topic away. Didn't want to talk about it. It was too uncomfortable. So like, whatever the reason, many of us don't go there. So if you have been with us for time now, over the past five months, we have spent time talking about Abraham and Isaac and then his son Jacob to come. We've had a series called The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we have spent the last five months in Genesis talking about their story of faith. And we will come back to that story. We will come back to those passages. But we're putting a pause on that series because for the next six weeks, we're gonna start a new series between now and like early July. And here's the new series. If you're new to Reality Church, welcome to Sexuality, Gender, and the Way of Jesus. I realize that could be awkward for your first Sunday in church with us. Um, now in a moment, we're gonna dive right in and open some of the scriptures today. But first, there it probably is at least one of you wondering why. Why? Why are we doing a series on this? So before I open up the Bible and give the message for today, I wanted just to briefly answer that for three reasons why. Why would we spend six weeks talking about this? First reason, again, so some of these slides are going to be in English and Spanish. Some of them are going to be my main points later will be in English, Spanish, and Swahili. But I'm using Google Translate, and I hope there's nothing offensive that pops up on the screen <laughs> as we go through this, because I, the Spanish, I'm like, yeah, that seems to match. The Swahili, I have no idea. So if I offend someone in Swahili today, I apologize. Um, but again, we'll learn, and I'll not do that again next time. Um, and maybe we can use French for if they speak French for uh, their future ones. But so why, why this series? Number one. Discipleship, blind spots, and cultural captivities. So this is probably the biggest reason why. So as a church, what is a church? We, yeah, we're a church. We are a community of disciples. We've chosen to follow Jesus, and we're inviting others to follow Jesus. As, as a community of Jesus followers, we are being formed into the image of Jesus for the sake of the world. So that, when you're like, what is this church really all about? Well, we are, we are Jesus followers, and it's why we talk about cultivating intimacy with God, with others, for others. So for us to be six, like, what does success look like for us? Success is about our formation as followers of Jesus into his image and likeness, that our lives would actually be changed to look more like him. So that, as Americans, mainly, soon to be Americans maybe, 
But as, as a lot of Americans living in 2023, living in this cultural moment, we have discipleship blind spots. Do you know what a blind spot is? What's a blind spot? Yeah, something that you want to see. <laughs> Thanks, song. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> something that you want to see, something that maybe you should be able to see, but it's not in your field of vision. In the cars, you have blind spots. You're trying to check your blind spots, the things that you can't see. I would say, I would contend that as a church in America, we have blind spots. There are things that we should be able to see, but we don't see because of the waters that we swim in. One of those blind spots, I think, has to do with sexuality, but there are many other blind spots. Materialism, hyper-individualism, racism, other things that are, have been so a part of the way that we just do life as Americans, we don't see it. And so it takes some time to say, if we're going to actually take serious the call of Jesus on our lives, let's pay attention to these things that maybe are in our blind spots. Some places where we are held captive to the culture that just prevails. So, again, as a church, we do often preach through books of the Bible long passages of scripture, um, and we will continue. Again, we'll, we'll get back to Genesis at some point here and talk about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But for these next six weeks, I think we need this blind spot to be examined for our health and flourishing. Reason number two is that the Bible actually says that there is an intimate link between sexuality and spirituality. And we live in a world that is constantly actually trying to pull those two pieces apart. A world that wants to disconnect spirituality and sexuality. And so we'll get more into this in the weeks to come. But actually, sexuality and spirituality are two sides of a similar coin. This desire to know and be known by God and this desire to know and be known by other people. We're actually talking about very similar things that get expressed in different ways. And so the way of Jesus is not to say, we'll talk about this today, sex is bad, sex, let's, let's just, let's, we're talking about God now. We're talking about spirituality. Who cares about sexuality? Actually, no, it has a whole lot to do with sexuality. So in a world that wants to pull these two pieces apart, we're seeking to find, is there a way to follow Jesus that puts them rightly together again? A quote from one author, Christopher West. This may be a, a shocking statement, but he says, the sexual confusion so prevalent in our world and in our own hearts is simply the human desire for heaven gone berserk. We all have this longing to know and be known. And in that process, there's some things that have gone sideways. All right, third reason why this series, um, maybe you've heard of this statement before, clear is kind. Clear is kind. Um, especially when it comes to controversial topics. It's easy to duck them, avoid them, dance around them. Um, 
especially with a topic like this, I just know there's a lot of shame. There's a lot of woundedness. There's a lot of stories. Your life, my life, those that we love, there's so much tied to this. The impact of this conversation is exponential in its impact. So the topics are controversial. The topics are polarizing. There's a greater culture war that everyone wants to run to fight around this. But at the end of the day, I think clear is kind. And so it's helpful for you all to know, as a church, this is, how we are le- this is where we're leading from. This is what we're teaching about. Everyone is welcome to come be a part of our community. And everyone at Reality Church is going to be called to follow Jesus, the way of Jesus. So what does that mean? And believe me, I I feel the weight of like six weeks to cover gender and sexuality. I'm not going to be able to say everything that there is to say, but there are a few things that are worth highlighting. So where to start? Um, We'll start with this. There's a a book called The Little Prince. In that book, this author, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, I I can't say French, Saint-Exupéry, he says, if you want to build the ship, don't drum up people together to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. So if you, if, you want to, if you want to build a ship, you can be like, okay, you build this, and you can assign tasks and duties and say do's and don'ts about building the ship, but the best way to build the ship is to cast a vision for the endless immensity of the sea, and when the endless immensity of the sea captures minds and hearts, then people are going to be like, I need to, I need to build the boat. I need to figure out how to get on the sea. So today, rather than just giving you a list of 10 do's and don'ts about sexuality or critiquing this or that, and again, we'll have conversations to come. What does God say about a vision for sexuality? What does God say about flourishing? So, we'll start there. All right, if you have a Bible, please open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If not, don't worry. I'll put it up on the screen in many languages for you today. Let me read this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul writes this to a church community in the city of Corinth. Here's what he writes. I'll read the passage all the way through, then we'll walk back through it. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, 
and the Lord for the body, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I believe this passage gives us seven. You're like, oh, seven? Yeah, seven. Seven things that we can recover in this vision of the endless immensity of the sea, this vision of God's heart for sexuality, biblical sexuality, this integrated sexuality and spirituality. So again, I know this is big picture, and we're going to get into all the questions and the what-ifs and the what-abouts, and we'll get those in weeks to come. I want to paint this picture of the big picture that God may have for us. First thing. Flourishing involves a common humility. A common humility. I'm not sure what you think of when you hear. There's a, there's a series on sexuality, gender, and the way of Jesus. But it could be very easy to be like, oh yeah, okay, I know where he's going with this. This is a series to target them. This is a series to target those people, the fill in the blank people, whoever that is to you. You just need to know that according to the Bible, we are all in play here. That's this idea of a common humility. This is not just a, oh, so-and-so needs to hear this. This is, I need to hear this for me. Here's what often goes unnamed in the Christian community, especially the church community. Christians tend to operate with a tier bias that then governs a sin bias, a a tiered level of sin that we operate with. Meaning, we would say, Whatever, and we all have maybe a different tier, but we have in our tier like that sin, that issue, that problem, that whatever, like that is way worse than these things. And in as much we don't realize the commonality that we carry. So verses nine and 10 here, Paul, again, he starts with the bang uh, and he just lists off all these things. And he, re- he, he reveals to us our common brokenness and the sin that we have chosen to walk in. In verses 9 and 10, he makes some pretty bold claims, doesn't he? Some pretty bold statements about the kingdom of God, God's standard of righteousness, God's standard of holiness, that God is perfect. He's the only one who is perfect. He is the only one who is pure. He is the only one who always does what is good and right and perfect. That is God. 
And he is so untainted by sin that every other deviation from his standard of perfection involves judgment, as he says here. That that those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, don't be deceived. It's really easy to be deceived. It's really easy to say, oh, this doesn't really matter. Oh, that's just some ancient stuff. Oh, those people live differently, different standards than what we live by today. These words still ring true. The scripture is really clear about the holy perfection of God. Jesus himself says, if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. Like the standard really is countercultural to the way we live today. Standard of holy perfection for all. Now, I just want to again call your attention to this list. This is not an exhaustive list of sin. I'm sure there's some other sins that exist. Like, this was, the goal of this was not to name every sin that's possibly there. But what, what does he include? Verse 9, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, those who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. And again, I just want to point out our tiered bias of sin. I've, I've heard many sermons. I've been around enough Christians who read this passage and say, see, there it is, right? This is the passage about homosexuality. And yes, that's one on the list. But it's really easy for us to grab this section and say, see, those people are really bad. Many people use a verse like this as a proof text to beat people up with. Now, to be clear, and clear is kind, we do teach the historic Christian ethic, sexual ethic in our church. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. But how many people have used scriptures of the, of the Bible to beat people up in judgment while ignoring this sin in our own lives? And I think that's one of the challenges in our world is that there are people who look at Christians pointing fingers and you're like, what about you? What about your life? Have you seen the Barna statistics? These stats are almost a decade old. And consider what's happened in smartphone use in the last decade. You can go to the next slide. 2014, Barna says, men who view pornography at least once a month, 79% of 18 to 30-year-olds, 67% of 31 to 49-year-olds, 49% of 50 to 68-year-olds, men who view pornography at least several times a week. A little lower, still pretty high. Next slide, women. 76% of 18 to 30-year-olds. 16% of 31 to 49-year-olds. It drops off a little bit with age. There's still plenty of sexual morality going on. Not to mention, what else was on the list? Greed? Man, we live in a materialistic, greedy age. Drunkenness, idolatry, reviling or slander. Man, just go on Facebook for a week. Around election time? We love to hide 
on our computer screens and just fire off shots at someone else who's different than we are. Again, we have this thing like, that sin, horrible, but I can be greedy, materialistic, slanderous, have a porn addiction, and call out the LGBTQ community. And again, just being really practical about this, we as a church staff, I particularly, I, I get emails from people asking, can, can me and can my same-sex partner come on a Sunday? Would we be welcomed? Like they're just new here, they're trying to find a new church community, and they're trying to feel it out. I've been a pastor here for almost 15 years now. Do you know what email I have never received? My husband has a porn addiction. Would we be welcome here? I'm sleeping with my boyfriend. Would we be welcome here? I've made an idol out of money. Would we be welcome here? I'm really materialistic. Can I come? I just ripped people on Facebook this week. Would I be welcomed? And I'm pointing out, we have a tiered sin structure. And we need a common humility. A common humility that doesn't pick and choose certain sins to throw the book at, and then secretly living in our own sin that we are unwilling to deal with. This passage reminds us we all need grace. Number two, flourishing involves redemptive identity. I'm going to pick up the pace here. I'll try to be more concise. But I think we need to realize that God declares our fullest identity is rooted in something deeper than our past, deeper than our most common sin struggles today. Look at verse 11 in this passage. 1 Corinthians 6, 11. He, he starts out listing off all these people and all these backgrounds and all these sins and all these areas of brokenness that they're living in. And then he ends the list in verse 11 and says, and such were some of you. And such were some of you. He declares that there's serious consequences for a life that's choosing independence from God. But then there are these glorious words, these glorious declarations of good news for all of humanity that though you may have lived in this way, though this may have defined your life, such were some of you. Another way of saying it is this is not who you are. At the core of your deepest identity, what is most true about you it's not your worst mistake. It's not your greatest failure. It's not your questions or wrestlings around your sexual identity. It's not about same-sex attraction or opposite-sex attraction. The most deepest part about you is about what does God say over you. And such were some of you. And it's not because of your own doing. It's not because you got your life put together. It's not because you managed to piece all things right again. It's not your list of moral accomplishments. It's not your personal piety. It's not your purity. But by faith, Paul says, you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified by the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. 
So again, this picture that God is putting out here is redemptive identity that is found through the person and work of Jesus, of his work for you, of his love for you, of his power in you, of his transformation for you, his opportunity to heal you, change you, develop you, grow you. So I know in our world, we live in a world of identity struggles, right? And among the LGBTQ community, the transgender community, same-sex attraction. There's an identity battle. Who am I? What is most true about me? And the same is true for other areas of life. It's true around addiction. What is true of me? Who am I? You are more than your urges, my friends. You are more than your questions. You are more than your struggles. You are more than your sin. You are more than your failures. You are more than your feelings. And all those matter. That's not to dismiss those things. Your feelings matter. Your questions matter. Your struggles matter. But it is not about the thing that defines you most. You're not defined by your dysphoria. You're not defined by your addiction. You're not defined by your socially acceptable sin or your socially unacceptable sin. We claim an identity rooted and grounded in the finished work of Jesus. Common humility. We all need help. Redemptive identity. Not based in ourselves. Based in him. Who are you? Who are you? What is your identity rooted in? Paul would say that Jesus and the Spirit of God has a lot to say to you. All right, number three. Flourishing involves embodied sexuality. Or in other words, God declares this vital, important connection between our bodies and our spirituality, and our sexuality that is good. Just doing some basic Bible study, if you look through 1 Corinthians 6, and you underline the word body, I did this, like, how many times does Paul say body in this passage? And I went through underline, I went back and counted. Eight times. Eight times in verses 12 through 20, he explicitly talks about our bodies. That's, um, that's called repetition, And when it repeats itself again, like, pay attention. What's the repetition? Body, our bodies. And I know this passage can be a little tricky because there's a part in it, uh, beginning in verse 12. You'll notice there's some quotes. Because this is a correspondence between Paul and the people in this church community in Corinth. And so what's happening is he's writing, they're writing back and forth, and they have said some things back to him that he is now correcting. So the quotes are things that they have said, and now he is trying to correct. So they have said, well, all things are lawful for me. And he says, yeah, not all things are helpful. So all things are lawful, but I will not be dominated by anything. Or they quote back, well, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And so then he responds back to their quote. So what was happening in this church, in this age, in this city, there were two kind of polarized views of sexuality. One was the appetite view of sexuality, which basically said, if you have an urge, 
do it. Just you, almost like an animalistic, you have this feeling. Whatever you feel, whatever you think, whatever you want, act on it and do it. And Paul's like, yeah, that's not going to be helpful for you. On the other end, though, there were some others in this community, and you look at chapter 7, that said, no, no, we're just, all we care about is God. Our bodies actually are bad. I'm not going to have sex at all. Sex is dirty and evil, and it's a kind of a dualistic thinking that all that matters is the spiritual, and this, like, earthly, sensual, body stuff, that's bad. And so you've got these different responses. Some are like animalistic urges, do whatever you feel like doing. Others are saying, oh, no, all I care about is the spiritual stuff, and so I didn't even think about my body at all. No marriage, no sex. And Paul says there's actually a, a different way here. He keeps coming back to this. Paul says that you and I are embodied souls. Your body matters. In, in fact, verses 15 through 17, he says the bo- your body matters so much that God would send his son Jesus to take on human flesh, that God would take on a human body because he wants to deal with the stuff that's going on in your body. Your body matters. Your body matters enough for God to take on a body through Jesus. God inhabits a body in Jesus. And he declares sexuality to be good Another message that sometimes doesn't come through in church. Sex is good. Your body is good. It's his idea. He gave you a body. He gave sexuality. He created attractions. It's a part of his good creation design. It's not, to be, it's not shameful. It's not to be hidden or avoided. He wants to put these worlds back together again of the spiritual and the physical. Not just in an animalistic, do-whatever-you-want-to way, but in a different kind of way. Maybe the most important part of my sermon, the fourth point, flourishing involves non-ultimate sexuality. So at the same time, we need to raise the value of our bodies. Your bodies matter. Your sexuality matters, your feelings matter, your urges matter to God. And at the same time, lowering the supremacy of sex. The Bible proclaims the non-ultimate secondary value of sexuality. Here's what I mean by that. Sex is really good, it's beautiful, it is a gift, it is important. But sexual expe- the sexual experience is not the most important thing in life. And if you watch our commercials, and you watch our movies, and you go online, you would be led to believe that sexual experience is one of the most important things that could ever happen to you in life. And if you don't experience it in a way that you want, then somehow you are living a less than human life. Pastor Ray Ortland asked this question, what is the ultimate human experience? What is ultimate? What is the ultimate human experience? What's our goal? And I believe in our culture we're being sold a false bill of goods. It's true for singles, 
Married people, gay, straight, trans, non-binary, any way you want to define it or slice it, we're being told that you need to achieve the ultimate human experience that is the unfettered satisfaction of your bodily desires. And again, your body is good. It matters. It is not ultimate. God declares our bodily sexuality to be non-ultimate, important, valuable, non-ultimate. We don't need sex to be complete. Well, what do I need then? What am I made for? Without sounding trite, Jesus 1 Corinthians 6, 13, that's what he says. The body's not meant for sexual immorality, but your body was actually meant for the Lord. I know that sounds like crazy. Your body was meant for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. He's the one who made you, and he has made you for himself to have relationship with him. This goes far beyond sexuality, but this speaks to other issues that we wrestle with, body image, health, addiction, so many other issues. Your body is meant for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on and says, actually, Jesus prioritizes his purposes and plans for your body. So if you can manage to zoom way out, and I know this is kind of meta at some level, but past the heat of the moment and past the intensity of all your questions or your dysphoria or your sexual urges, and you see what is going on here, he is saying a really controversial thing here, that at the heart of all of your longings and desires is the God who made you and the God who loves you. And it's a signpost pointing to Jesus, your longing for intimacy is a signpost pointing to the God who has made you. You're made for intimacy with him. So if you take any sexual experience along any lines and you start making ultimate claims, ultimate claims of fulfillment and identity, I'm just saying you're standing on broken ground. If you make heterosexual marriage and sexuality, the ultimate experience for humanity, you're standing on broken ground. Because guess what you've just done? You've disqualified Jesus from having the ultimate human experience because Jesus never got married and Jesus never had sex. So we cannot afford to define ultimate human experience as being found in the arms of a lover apart from the true lover who has come to offer himself for you. All right, next one. Flourishing involves a temple mentality. Paul's words are very counterintuitive here. Again, next slide, verse 15. He asks a bunch of questions. He's like, do you not know? Do you not know, verse 16? He says, eventually he comes to the conclusion, verse 19, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you. And he doesn't want them to forget who they are. 
In the midst of a culture where some people were saying, just do whatever you want to do, and another culture that says, well, your body is evil and bad, so don't have sex, just think about God. He says, don't you know who you are? That you are actually the temple of the living God. And to have a mentality, a temple mentality, that God's solution to the problem of sin is to have a sacrificial substitute in Jesus. To have us be washed clean by the blood of Christ. To defeat the power of sin and death. So that he could send, again, this is the the point of Pentecost Sunday, that he would send his Holy Spirit to come and be among us that we would be the place where God would dwell, that God would no longer just dwell in holy spaces or holy buildings or a tabernacle or a temple in Jerusalem, but that God himself would come to dwell in you. I don't know if we believe this, that those who have come by faith and trust in Jesus have come to be the temple of the living God. It's like here in this room, God has come to dwell in us. Look at your body, your hands, your legs, your feet. Some of you don't like looking at your body, your hands or your feet. But that God has done whatever he has needed to do to make himself come to dwell here. The sacredness of the individual temple and the corporate temple of the body of Christ. Which is why Paul then comes back to this idea. It's why he speaks the way that he speaks. It's why he keeps ringing this bell and beating this drum. He says, if you actually understand that you are the temple of the living God, that would change the way that you live. It would change how you speak. It would change where you go. It would change what you do. It would change the way that you interact, that God has come to dwell in you. Your body was made for relationship with God. You are not your own, he says at the very end there. You were bought with a price. All sexual desire points to this. All sexual attraction points to this. All sexual intimacy hopes for this the idea of you being in union with Jesus. To quote the band Switchfoot, you were made to live for so much more. Do you know who you are? Almost there, number six. Flourishing involves clear, decisive, courageous activity. That's why he says in verse 18, this is the command in the midst of all these statements. In verse 18, go to the next slide, if we can. Come on, maybe we didn't put it up there. Verse 18 says, flee from sexual immorality. It's this Greek word, feugo. It has kind of some onomatopoetic sound to it. Feugo, flee. Change the way that you are living. Sexual morality is the word porneia, which is a very broad junk door category of sexual sin. So are you willing in light of all that God has done and all that God has said about who you are, understanding your body meant for him and him for you, are you willing to then change the way that you live? 
Now, that may mean the, the clear, decisive, courageous activity may mean a change in the way that you live. It may mean getting some help. It may mean talking to a counselor. It may mean having a hard conversation with those that you know and love. In in all sorts of ways, in all sorts of categories, is there a way in which this idea of a life that is lived for God, a life that is lived for him, your body belongs to him to be lived at his call and command because he loves you and is the only one who does not do that in harm of you. Are you willing to let him change the way you live? Last, because flourishing involves glory of God's singularity. That's how he ends in verse 20. He says, therefore, at the end of this whole statement, he says, glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body. What does God want for you? He wants you to have a life that is lived in your body, not just being an animal doing whatever it is that you want to do and not ignoring your body and your feelings and your appetites and your urges and your desires, but that you would take all of that life in light of the finished work of Jesus for you and that you would say, God, my desire is to glorify you. I want to honor you in the way that I live. And the implications for that run deep. Author Denny Burke, in his book, What's the Meaning of Sex? He makes the distinction between subordinate purposes and ultimate purposes. If you were to ask someone, what's the, what's the ultimate purpose of a car? Well, to sit in. So that's why I have comfortable seats. Not the ultimate purpose of a car. That's a subordinate purpose. To play my music loud subordinate purpose, not the ultimate purpose. Again, those things matter. Your comfortable seats and your stereo. But the ultimate purpose of a car is transportation to get you from one place to the next. And there's lots that goes into this conversation of sexuality around procreation, pleasure, subordinate purposes, ultimate purposes, glorify God. Are we willing to use our bodies to glorify him? If Jesus Christ really existed and he really lived and he really died and he really rose, and I know those are ifs, but if he really did live, if he really did, if he really is who he says that he is and he really did rise again from the dead and he is resurrected as the risen king of heaven and earth, then he gets the chance to call the shots for our lives. We get to glorify him in our bodies. And now I realize that that just sounds really easy. What about, and again, I know there's like a dozen whatabouts. And we'll get into some of those in the weeks to come. But this vision of sexuality where our sexuality matters to our spirituality because of God and what he has done and who he says that we are and the fact that we are no longer who we were but we have been given a new redemptive identity through Jesus because our bodies actually do matter. And the purpose and goal of our life is to somehow glorify him with our lives. 
that we can begin to sort those things out. And I know that some people have been given really trite answers and trite solutions that don't pay attention to wounds and pain and trauma and challenges. We make sure we end up here, though. A common humility. Pastor Tim Keller passed away this week. He often used to say, that you and I are more broken than we feared. But we are more loved and accepted than we ever imagined. And both of those are true. As I look in the mirror of my own life, I see more sin and brokenness than I even feared was there in the first place. But I know through the person and work of Jesus that I am more loved than I ever imagined. Can we step into both and look at the brokenness in the way that Jesus deals with broken people with compassion and love, but also receive from him immense grace to live a life that says, I'm going to glorify God with what I have. This is my one life to live. This is my one body that I have. How do I glorify God with that? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your love. And Lord, I know that in having these conversations, we're dealing with some of these blind spot issues that we don't talk about a lot. And we're probably more likely to be formed by a video that we saw on YouTube or TikTok than we are from your word. And so, Lord, with all of the voices and all of the just the noise of our culture. We pray even now that there would be a space in which we could hear what is true from you, that we would celebrate your great love for us, your great valuing of our bodies, your desire to reconnect it back to what we've been made for, and an abundance of your grace and mercy and love that meets us right where we are. So God, I know the implications of glorifying you with our bodies, of knowing that we were made for you and you for us. It runs deep. Help us, Lord, to understand what you're saying and respond in humility to you with a yes. And God, I pray for those who carry deep shame, deep fear, deep confusion for a whole host of reasons. God, I pray peace on them as we have these conversations. But may your name be lifted up. May the life that is truly life come from you be experienced by all we would ask. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.